The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and sun. There are millions of suns left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the specters in books. You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. And that comes from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. And it seems that a good way to do Whitman, to present Whitman here, at least for me, would be to separate his poems out into his love poetry, his death poetry, and what I would call his poetry of mysticism. I thought that that might be a better word to use than transcendentalism, since by now he seems to have... uh, floated away from those bearings. If anyone thinks of transcendentalism, they don't think of Walt Whitman. Uh, I suppose at least, uh, unless you are a scholar, I guess you might. Uh, But mysticism, for lack of a better word, seems to be a way of talking about how Whitman is able to identify himself and identify everyone else with all the world and with the past and the future and all the rest of it. I won't get into that much today because these poems that I'm reading here will be what seem to be his love poetry. What I just read may not sound like a love poem. The only part that might sound like a conventional love poem is when he says, Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. And then it goes on from there. There might not be anything particularly romantic about it, but it seems at least to me that there is. There is something about love here, and I like what Whitman is doing. He is saying, I am not going to seduce you with poetry, and to use the terminology from Whitman's time, I'm not going to, or maybe it was archaic even for his day, I'm not going to woo you with poetry. What I'm going to show you is that love and intimacy is actually deeper and much different than poetry. 
uh, poetry is beside the point. And what I will probably do at the end of this episode is uh, tack on the reading I did from Paul Zweig's book for an episode from last year called Whitman and Sex, and that will give a good idea of what we know and what we don't know about Whitman's uh, romantic uh, relationships. And just in the sense of what I've read here, you wonder if uh, Whitman is fantasizing here. Um, He's saying that poetry is not it, but of course that is the way he is expressing himself. He is saying, stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. But he is writing a poem, after all. He had the time to write the poem, not necessarily to have someone stop this day and night with them. And you wonder how much of this is Whitman wishing and fantasizing and longing as was one of the key words in that episode I did last year. So if anyone is starting this episode now and they look at the uh, length of this episode, it could be well more than an hour, understand that probably an hour of it will be uh, that previous episode put at the end of me reading Whitman's poetry. This is another piece from Song of Myself. It seemed best to read excerpts from Song of Myself uh, rather than attempt at any point to read the entire thing, to read different sections that can fit in with either love, death, or mysticism seem to be the way to go. This is another one. Loaf with me on the grass, loose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music or rhyme I want, not custom or lecture, not even the best, only the lull I like, the hum of your valved voice. I mind how we lay in June, such a transparent summer morning. You settled your head athwart my hips, and gently turned over upon me, and parted the shirt from my bosom bone, and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart. And you reached till you felt my beard, and reached till you held my feet. And that is more conventionally love and romantic and physical. Even the uh, last image, uh, reached till you felt my beard and reached till you felt my feet, is a wonderful kind of acrobatic image that I am not quite sure how that is achieved, and that is why that uh, works so well, it seems like. This next piece from Song of Myself um, is one of the, uh, probably one of the most famous sections of any of Whitman's poems. Twenty-eight young men bathed by the shore, twenty-eight young men and all so friendly, Twenty-eight years of womanly life and all so lonesome. She owns the fine house by the rise of the bank. She hides handsome and richly dressed after the blinds of the window. Which of the young men does she like the best? Ah, the homeliest of them is beautiful to her. Where are you off to, lady, for I see you, 
You splash in the water there, yet stay stock still in your room. Dancing and laughing along the beach came the twenty-ninth bather. The rest did not see her, but she saw them and loved them. The beards of the young men glistened with wet. It ran from their long hair. Little streams passed all over their bodies. An unseen hand also passed over their bodies. It descended tremblingly from their temples and ribs. The young men float on their backs. Their white bellies swell to the sun. They do not ask who seizes fast to them. They do not know who puffs and declines with pendant and bending arch. They do not think whom they souse with spray. And of course it's easy to not just appreciate the depth that Whitman gave to a woman gazing on a man in the 1850s, uh, giving voice to that kind of longing, but it's also uh, part and parcel, I would say, with something Paul Zweig says, that all of the kisses in Whitman's poetry, when he mentions uh, his poetic self kissing a man or a woman, it is always a kiss of departure. It is always a leave-taking. Or in this case here, it is something that doesn't actually happen. happen. It is another instance of longing, of wanting, but of not, but of perhaps not actually wanting fulfillment, but of enjoying the longing and the fantasizing. And let's see, page 20 here. This is, here we are. I am enamored of growing outdoors of men that live among cattle or taste of the ocean or woods, of the builders and steerers of ships, of the wielders of axes and mauls, of the drivers of horses. I can eat and sleep with them week in and week out. What is commonest and cheapest and nearest and easiest is me. Me going in for my chances, spending for vast returns, adorning myself to bestow myself on the first that will take me, not asking the sky to come down to my goodwill, scattering it freely forever. Just little hints, little hints here of what he is looking for. And these two, I remember in a documentary about Whitman, uh, the critic Harold Bloom, the, the documentary was wonderful because on the one hand, you had Allen Ginsberg being interviewed, who was completely sure that Whitman had many, uh, uh, many physical partners, actual sexual fulfillment, and so much so that uh, he was able to say, well, Whitman slept with this man and this man and this man. And if you went down the line, uh, eventually Ginsburg slept with one of those people along the link. So he believed that he had that connection to Whitman. And uh, Harold Bloom, the critic Harold Bloom, thought the exact opposite. 
he thought that based on Whitman's poetry and his notebooks, that the most Whitman could do was, uh, I guess, masturbate. That was the idea. That was the closest. That was the only sort of sexual release that he could actually have. And he used these two passages, I believe, as uh, part of the reasons that he came to that conclusion. Uh, one of the things Whitman says in Song of Myself is this, just two lines. I merely stir, press, feel with my fingers, and am happy. To touch my person to someone else's is about as much as I can stand. And a moment later he says, You villain touch, what are you doing? My breath is tight in its throat. Unclench your floodgates. You are too much for me. Blind, loving, wrestling touch. Sheathed, hooded, sharp-toothed touch. Did it make you ache so, leaving me? And one last little bit here from Song of Myself. Oh yes, it's this another two lines, this great image, um, where Whitman says, I turn the bridegroom out of bed and stay with the bride myself and tighten her all night to my thighs and lips. And just hearing those two passages together, um, at least for me, I merely stir, uh, what does he say, to touch my person to someone else's is about as much as I can stand. That sounds like an admission to me. I turn the bridegroom out of bed and stay with the bride myself and tighten her all night to my thighs and lips. That sounds like persona to me, but um, there's not really, it doesn't really matter who was right and who is wrong here. I should say that I am reading from the two books that I just published through S4N Books, Whitman's Selected Long Poems and Whitman's Selected Short Poems, where I've brought together the, the best of his long and his short poetry and have used as the text the earliest published versions of those poems, of these poems that I'm reading. And so I will put a link to those books in the post description. Now we move on to Whitman's shorter poems. And let's see what the first one is. This might seem like a surprising one to be about love as well. This is called To You. The original title of the poem was Poem of You, Whoever You Are. Whoever you are, I fear you are walking the walks of dreams. I fear those realities are to melt from under your feet and hands. Even now, your features, joys, speech, house, trade, manners, troubles, follies, costume, crimes, dissipate away from you. Your true soul and body appear before me. They stand forth out of affairs, out of commerce, shops, law, science, work, farms, clothes, the house, medicine, print, buying, selling, eating, drinking, suffering, begetting, dying. They receive these in their places. They find these or the like of these eternal for reasons. They find themselves eternal 
They do not find that the water and soil tend to endure forever, and they not endure. Whoever you are, now I place my hand upon you, that you be my poem. I whisper with my lips close to your ear. I have loved many women and men, but I love none better than you. Oh, I have been dilatory and dumb. I should have made my way straight to you long ago. I should have blabbed nothing but you. I should have chanted nothing but you. I will leave all and come and make the hymns of you. None have understood you, but I understand you. None have done justice to you. You have not done justice to yourself. None but have found you imperfect. I only find no imperfection in you. None but would subordinate you. I only am he who will never consent to subordinate you. I only am he who places over you no master, owner, better, God, beyond what waits intrinsically in yourself. Painters have painted their swarming groups, and the center figure of all, from the head of the center figure spreading a nimbus of gold-colored light. But I paint myriads of heads, but paint no head without its nimbus of gold-colored light. From my hand, from the brain of every man and woman it streams, effulgently flowing forever. Oh, I could sing such grandeurs and glories about you. You have not known what you are. You have slumbered upon yourself all your life. Your eyelids have been as much as closed most of the time. What you have done returns already in mockeries, your thrift, knowledge, prayers. If they do not return in mockeries, what is their return? The mockeries are not you. Underneath them and within them I see you lurk. I pursue you where none else has pursued you. Silence, the desk, the flippant expression, the night, the accustomed routine. If these conceal you from others or from yourself, they do not conceal you from me. The shaved face, the unsteady eye, the impure complexion. If these balk others, they do not balk me. The pert apparel, the deformed attitude, drunkenness, greed, premature death, all these I part aside. I track through your windings and turnings. I come upon you where you thought I should never come upon you. There is no endowment in man or woman that is not tallied in you. There is no virtue, no beauty in man or woman, but as good is in you. No pluck, no endurance in others, but as good is in you. No pleasure waiting for others, but an equal pleasure waits for you. As for me, I give nothing to anyone except I give the like carefully to you. I sing the songs of the glory of none, not God, sooner than I sing the songs of the glory of you. Whoever you are, you are to hold your own at any hazard. These shows of the East and West are tame 
compared to you. These immense shadows, these interminable rivers, you are immense and interminable as they. These furies, elements, storms, motions of nature, throes of apparent dissolution, you are he or she who is master or mistress over them, master or mistress in your own right over nature, elements, pain, passion, dissolution. The hopples fall from your ankles. You find an unfailing sufficiency. Old, young, male, female, rude, low, rejected by the rest. Whatever you are promulges itself. Through birth, life, death, burial, the means are provided. Nothing is scanted. Through angers, losses, ambition, ignorance, ennui, what you are picks its way. And other than Song of, not Song of Myself, other than the poem that came to be known as I Sing the Body Electric, which I recorded last year and will put at the end of these shorter poems, this may be the longest of the poems that Whitman wrote that I would call a love poem. He seems to have found it hard to either fantasize or have longing on a large scale in the way of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry or When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed or Song of Myself or um, any of the other long poems. Uh, it seems to have been a difficult thing for him, but he does it here with uh, the poem called To You. I will mention the, uh, by the way, the more familiar title and then give the original title that the poem had just so we have that here. This next poem is called uh, Once I Passed Through a Populous City, and it was originally number nine in the Children of Adam cluster. Once I passed through a populous city, imprinting my brain for future use with its shows, architecture, customs, and traditions. Yet now, of all that city, I remember only a woman I casually met there who detained me for love of me. Day by day and night by night we were together. All else has long been forgotten by me. I remember, I say, only that woman who passionately clung to me. Again we wander, we love, we separate again. Again she holds me by the hand. I must not go. I see her close beside me, with silent lips, sad and tremulous. And if I remember the biographies right, uh, there are uh, Whitman's trip to New Orleans in 1848 with his brother. I believe that uh, it was always assumed that if that poem was a strictly autobiographical one, then the woman he met was someone in New Orleans, or maybe it was a man that he met in New Orleans. This next poem is called Whoever You Are Now, Whoever You Are Holding Me Now in Hand, and it was originally number three in Whitman's Calamus cluster. Nearly all of the remaining love poems, actually, 
will be uh, bits and pieces from uh, Whitman's Calamus Cluster, which I think was more than 40 poems, but I won't be reading quite that many of them. Whoever you are, holding me now in hand, without one thing, all will be useless. Let me start the poem over again. Whoever you are, holding me now in hand, without one thing, all will be useless. I give you fair warning before you attempt me further. I am not what you supposed, but far different. Who is he? that would become my follower, who would sign himself a candidate for my affections. Are you he? The way is suspicious, the results slow and certain, may be destructive. You would have to give up all else. I alone would expect to be your God, sole and exclusive. Your novitiate would even then be long and exhausting. The whole past theory of your life, and all conformity to the lives around you, would have to be abandoned. Therefore release me now, before troubling yourself any further. Let go your hand from my shoulders, put me down, and depart on your way. Or else, only by stealth, in some wood, for trial, or back of a rock, the open air, for in any roofed room of a house I emerge not, nor in company, and in libraries I lie as one dumb, a gawk, or unborn, or dead. But just possibly with you, on a high hill, first watching lest any person for miles around approach unawares, or possibly with you, sailing at sea, or on the bench of the sea, or some quiet island, here to put your lips upon mine, I permit you, with the comrade's long-dwelling kiss, or the new husband's kiss, for I am the new husband, and I am the comrade. Or, if you will, thrusting me beneath your clothing, where I may feel the throbs of your heart, or rest upon your hip. Carry me when you go forth over land or sea, for thus merely touching you is enough, is best, and thus touching you would I silently sleep and be carried eternally. But these leaves conning you con at peril, for these leaves and me you will not understand. They will elude you at first, and still more afterward. I will certainly elude you, even while you should think you had unquestionably caught me. Behold, already you see I have escaped from you. For it is not for what I have put into it that I have written this book, nor is it by reading it you will acquire it, nor do those who know me best, who admire me, and vauntingly praise me, nor will the candidates for my love, unless at most a very few, prove victorious, nor will my poems do good only. They will do just as much evil, perhaps more, for all is useless without that which you may guess at times and not hit, that which I hinted at. Therefore release me, 
and depart on your way. And when I reread that a few days ago, it seemed the most elaborate version of it's not you, it's me. Um, let's see, the next one is here. Uh, the next one was originally number seven in the Calamus cluster, and it later attained the title of the terrible doubt of appearances. Of the terrible doubt, of the terrible question of appearances, of the doubts, the uncertainties after all, that maybe reliance and hope are but speculations after all, that maybe identity beyond the grave is a beautiful fable only, Maybe the things I perceive, the animals, plants, men, hills, shining and flowing waters, the skies of day and night, colors, densities, forms, maybe these are, as doubtless they are, only apparitions, and the real something has yet to be known. How often they dart out of themselves as if to confound me and mock me, how often I think neither I know, nor any man knows, aught of them. Maybe they only seem to me what they are, as doubtless they indeed but seem, as from my present point of view, and might prove, as of course they would, not of what they appear, or not anyhow, from entirely changed points of view. To me, these, and the like of these, are curiously answered by my lovers, my dear friends. When he whom I love travels with me, or sits a long while holding me by the hand, when the subtle air, the impalpable, the sense that words and reason hold not, surround us and pervade us, then I am charged with untold and untellable wisdom, I am silent. I require nothing further. I cannot answer the question of appearances, or that of identity beyond the grave. But I walk or sit indifferent. I am satisfied. He a hold of my hands has completely satisfied me. And you may have been wondering up until the last few lines, why I would have thought that was a love poem, but there you see. I am satisfied. He, a hold of my hand, has completely satisfied me. And isn't that what we would all want love to be on some level? The next two poems, Calamus number eight and Calamus number nine, were never republished in future editions of Leaves of Grass. And perhaps you can guess why when I read them. Calamus number eight says this. Long I thought that knowledge alone would suffice me. Oh, if I could but obtain knowledge. Then my lands engrossed me, lands of the prairies, Ohio's land, the southern savannas, engrossed me. For them I would live, I would be their orator. Then I met the examples of old and new heroes. I heard of warriors, sailors, and all dauntless persons. And it seemed to me that I too had it in me to be as dauntless as any. 
and would be so, and then, to enclose all, it came to me to strike up the songs of the new world, and then I believed my life must be spent in singing. But now take notice, land of the prairies, land of the south savannas, Ohio's land. Take notice, you Canuck woods, and you Lake Huron, and all that with you roll toward Niagara, and you Niagara also, and you Californian mountains, that you each and all find somebody else to be your singer of songs. For I can be your singer of songs no longer. One who loves me is jealous of me, and withdraws me from all but love. With the rest I dispense, I sever from what I thought would suffice me, for it does not. It is now empty and tasteless to me. I heed knowledge and the grandeur of the states and the example of heroes no more. I am indifferent to my own songs. I will go with him I love. It is to be enough for us that we are together. We never separate again. And of course, this is number eight in a sequence of more than 40 poems in the middle of the 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass, which is probably the uh, greatest of the editions. And it, uh, and we have Whitman continuing to write poems until his death in 1892. So again, it is Whitman sadly, sadly wishing that this, uh, that this scenario could but be true. This is Calamus number nine. Hours continuing long, sore and heavy-hearted. Hours of the dusk when I withdrew to a lonesome and unfrequented spot, seating myself, leaning my face in my hands. Hours sleepless, deep in the night when I go forth, speeding swiftly the country roads or through the city streets or pacing miles and miles, stifling plaintive cries. Hours discouraged, distracted, for the one I cannot content myself without. Soon I saw him content himself without me. Hours when I am forgotten, oh, weeks and months are passing, but I believe I am never to forget. Sullen and suffering hours, I am ashamed, but it is useless. I am what I am. Hours of my torment, I wonder if other men ever have the like, out of the like feelings. Is there even one other like me, distracted, his friend, his lover, lost to him? Is he too as I am now? Does he still rise in the morning, dejected, thinking who is lost to him, and at night, awaking, think who is lost? Does he too harbor his friendship, silent and endless, harbor his anguish and passion? Does some stray reminder, or the casual mention of a name, bring the fit back upon him, taciturn and depressed? Does he see himself reflected in me? In these hours does he see the face of his hours reflected? And then what was originally number 11 in the Calamus Cluster 
and became known later as when I heard at the close of the day when I heard at the close of the day how my name had been received with plaudits in the capital still it was not a happy night for me that followed and else when I caroused or when my plans were accomplished still I was not happy but the day when I rose at dawn from the bed of perfect health refreshed, singing, inhaling the ripe breath of autumn. When I saw the full moon in the west grow pale and disappear in the morning light. When I wandered alone over the beach and, undressing, bathed, laughing with the cool waters, and saw the sun rise. And when I thought how my dear friend, my lover, was on his way coming, oh, then I was happy. Oh, then each breath tasted sweeter, and all that day my food nourished me more, and the beautiful day passed well. And the next came with equal joy, and with the next at evening came my friend. And that night, while all was still, I heard the waters roll slowly, continually up the shores. I heard the hissing rustle of the liquid and sands as directed to me, whispering to congratulate me. For the one I love most lay sleeping by me under the same cover in the cool night, in the stillness, in the autumn moonbeams. His face was inclined toward me, and his arm lay lightly around my breast, and that night I was happy. And you, you believe that? Walt was happy. This is one of my favorite things in the entire world. It is the quotation I put on the back of the book of Whitman's short poems. Um, many years ago when uh, my wife and I were living in different states and we realized that that was not a situation that should continue and that I should uh, drive out to be with her, I remember stopping at payphones along the way as I crossed the country, and in this case it was a payphone somewhere in Indiana along, I can't remember the name of the, of the highway there, I want to say I-40, but I don't think that's right. Um, it was a freeway in Indiana, and um, got off at an exit, there was a BP with a subway inside, so I got something to eat and took a break, and there was a payphone across the street, because this is before um, cell phones were absolutely everywhere, and uh, with a cornfield on the other side of me, and the road, and the BP, and the subway on the opposite side, uh, this is the poem that I read uh, over the phone, still a good many hundred miles and many days to go, but this is the one that I read. This is originally number 22 in the Calamus Cluster, and it is called To a Stranger. Passing Stranger, you do not know how I longingly look upon you. You must be he I was seeking or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you, all is recalled as we flit by each other, fluid, affectionate, chaste, 
matured. You grew up with me, or a boy with me, or a girl with me. I ate with you and slept with you. Your body has become not yours only, nor left my body mine only. You give me the pleasure of your eyes, face, flesh, as we pass. You take my beard, breast, hands, in return. I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone, or wake at night alone. I am to wait. I do not doubt I am to meet you again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. Now you might wonder, why would you read that poem to someone that you're actually going to speak with and live with? And you might even wonder why Whitman would write a poem in this way and then say, I am, to, I am not to speak to you, I am to wait. There is always the waiting, there is always the, the image and the desire and the feeling and the abandon. But except for the poem right before this, where he says that he was happy, aside from that, there is always, on the one hand, the waiting and the wish to not lose what is being waited for. It is a, a, a brutal, brutal way to live. I see that there are only two other poems left, so let me just read this one again. To a stranger, passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look upon you. You must be he I was seeking, or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. All is recalled as we flit by each other, fluid, affectionate, chaste, matured. You grew up with me, or a boy with me, or a girl with me. I ate with you and slept with you. Your body has become not yours only, nor left my body mine only. You give me the pleasure of your eyes, face, flesh, as we pass. You take of my beard, breast, hands, in return. I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone, or wake at night, alone. I am to wait. I do not doubt I am to meet you again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. I feel like I could read that poem for the next hour and just see more and more and more in it. Uh, but I'll keep going. Let's see. This was originally number 28 in the Calamus Cluster and became known as when I peruse the conquered fame. When I peruse the conquered fame of heroes and the victories of mighty generals, I do not envy the generals, nor the president in his presidency, nor the rich in his great house. But when I read of the brotherhood of lovers, how it was with them, 
How through life, through dangers, odium, unchanging, long and long, through youth and through middle and old age, how unfaltering, how affectionate and faithful they were. Then I am pensive. I hastily put down the book and walk away, filled with the bitterest envy. And the key for me, at least, is that he comes across this story of unfaltering love in a book, which, as the very first love poem I read here suggested, is not the place to go to look for love. What Whitman wants to do is to present to his lover that, that the book is not it, but we always see that the book is what Whitman has, and for better or for worse, the book is what Whitman had to give to us. And the very last of the short love poems that I will read here, again, you might think this is an odd love poem, but I think that uh, there are many different kinds of love in Whitman's poetry. And that's one of the reasons why I'm including I Sing the Body Electric in just a moment. Because if Whitman is the head poems about love, what he also was able to do, as no one else before him, and perhaps no one since, is to be a poet of physical intimacy and of the body. And I don't know of any other poem that does that other than I sing the body electric, the poem that came to be uh, known by that name, and neither, and that poem does not fit with either the mystical side of Whitman or, of course, the death side of Whitman. It is all life, physical life, physical intimacy, and the other kind of love he has is the one I just mentioned, the one through the book, the one for his readers. and. So, on the one hand, I found it really interesting that going through the poems I selected for these two books, there are a great deal of love poems early in his career and hardly any later on. There are, even in Song of Myself, there isn't a huge amount about death, but there certainly is near the end of his life. So you see these two things, love and death, crossing each other in the middle. And so this is the last poem I will leave you with. This is Whitman's love poem, I suppose, uh, to all of us these many years later. There's a poem called Thou Reader. Thou reader throbbest life and pride and love the same as I. Therefore, for thee, the following chants. And so I will give you I Sing the Body Electric, and after that, the previous episode about Whitman and love and Whitman and sex.
I Sing the Body Electric by Walt Whitman. The bodies of men and women engirth me, and I engirth them. They will not let me off, nor I them, till I go with them and respond to them and love them. Was it dreamed whether those who corrupted their own live bodies could conceal themselves, and whether those who defiled the living were as bad as they who defile the dead? The expression of the body of man or woman Bach's account, the male is perfect, and that of the female is perfect. The expression of a well-made man appears not only in his face, it is in his limbs and joints also. It is, curiously, in the joints of his hips and wrists. It is in his walk, the carriage of his neck, the flex of his waist and knees. Dress does not hide him. The strong, sweet, supple quality he has strikes through the cotton and flannel. To see him pass conveys as much as the best poem, perhaps more. You linger to see his back, and the back of his neck and shoulder side. The sprawl and fullness of babes, the bosoms and heads of women, the folds of their dresses, their style as we pass in the street, the contour of their shape downwards. The swimmer naked in the swimming bath, seen as he swims through the salt transparent green shine, or lies on his back and rolls silently with the heave of the water. Framers bare-armed framing a house, hoisting the beams in their places, or using the mallet and mortising chisel, the bending forward and backward of rowers and rowboats, the horseman in his saddle, girls and mothers and housekeepers in all their exquisite offices, the groups of laborers seated at noontime with their open dinner kettles and their wives waiting, the female soothing a child, the farmer's daughter in the garden or cowyard, the woodman rapidly swinging his axe in the woods, the young fellow hoeing corn, the sleigh driver guiding his six horses through the crowd, the wrestle of wrestlers, two apprentice boys quite grown, lusty, good-natured, native-born, out on the vacant lot at sundown after work, the coats and vests and caps thrown down, the embrace of love and resistance, the upper hold and the underhold, the hair rumpled over and blinding the eyes, the march of firemen in their own costumes, the play of the masculine muscle through clean-setting trousers and waistbands, the slow return from the fire, the pause when the bell strikes suddenly again, the listening on the alert, the natural, perfect, and varied attitudes, the bent head, the curved neck, the counting. Such like I love, I loosen myself and pass freely, and am at the mother's breast with the little child, and swim with the swimmer and wrestle with the wrestlers and march in line with the firemen, and pause and listen and count. I knew a man, he was a common farmer, he was the father of five sons, 
and in them were the fathers of sons, and in them were the fathers of sons. This man was of wonderful vigor and calmness and beauty of person, the shape of his head, the richness and breadth of his manners, the pale yellow and white of his hair and beard, the immeasurable meaning of his black eyes. These I used to go and visit him to see. He was wise also. He was six feet tall. He was over 80 years old. His sons were massive, clean, bearded, hand-faced, and handsome. They and his daughters loved him. All who saw him loved him. They did not love him by allowance. They loved him with personal love. He drank water only. The blood showed like scarlet through the clear brown skin of his face. He was a frequent gunner and fisher. He sailed his boat himself. He had a fine one presented to him by a ship joiner. He had fowling pieces presented to him by men that loved him. When he went with his five sons and many grandsons to hunt or fish, you would pick him out as the most beautiful and vigorous of the gang. You would wish long and long to be with him. You would wish to sit by him in the boat, that you and he might touch each other. I have perceived that to be with those I like is enough. To stop in company with the rest at evening is enough. To be surrounded by beautiful, curious, breathing, laughing flesh is enough. To pass among them, to touch anyone, to rest my arm ever so lightly round his or her neck for a moment. What is this, then? I do not ask any more delight. I swim in it as in a sea. There is something in staying close to men and women and looking on them and in the contact and odor of them that pleases the soul well. All things please the soul, but these please the soul well. This is the female form. A divine nimbus exhales from it, from head to foot. It attracts with fierce and deniable attraction. I am drawn by its breath as if I were no more than a helpless vapor. All falls aside but myself and it. Books, art, religion, time, the visible and solid earth, the atmosphere and the fringed clouds, what was expected of heaven or feared of hell, are now consumed. Mad filaments, ungovernable shoots play out of it, the response likewise ungovernable. Hair, bosom, hips, bend of legs, negligent falling hands, all diffused, mine too, diffused. Ebb stung by the flow and flow stung by the ebb, love flesh swelling and deliciously aching, limitless limpid jets of hot and an enormous quivering jelly of love, white blow and delirious juice, bridegroom night of love working surely and softly into the prostrate dawn, undulating into the willing and yielding day, lost in the cleave of the clasping and sweet-fleshed day. This is the nucleus. After the child is born of woman, the man is born of woman. This is the bath of birth. 
This is the merge of small and large and the outlet again. Be not ashamed, women. Your privilege encloses the rest. It is the exit of the rest. You are the gates of the body and you are the gates of the soul. The female contains all qualities and tempers them. She is in her place. She moves with perfect balance. She is all things duly veiled. She is both passive and active. She is to conceive daughters as well as sons, and sons as well as daughters. As I see my soul reflected in nature, as I see through a mist, one with inexpressible completeness and beauty, see the bent head and arms folded over the breast, the female I see, I see the bearer of the great fruit which is immortality. The good thereof that is not tasted by rues and never can be. The male is not less the soul, nor more. He, too, is in his place. He, too, is all qualities. He is action and power. The flesh of the known universe is in him. Scorn becomes him well, and appetite and defiance become him well. The fiercest, largest passions... Bliss that is utmost and sorrow that is utmost become him well. Pride is for him. The full-spread pride of a man is calming and excellent to the soul. Knowledge becomes him. He likes it always. He brings everything to the test of himself. Whatever the survey, whatever the sea and the sail, he strikes soundings at last, only here. Where else does he strike soundings except here? The man's body is sacred, and the woman's body is sacred. It is no matter who. Is it a slave? Is it one of the dull-faced immigrants just landed on the wharf? Each belongs here or anywhere, just as much as the well-off. Just as much as you, each has his or her place in the procession. All is procreation. The universe is a procession with measured and beautiful motion. Do you know so much that you call the slave or the dull face ignorant? Do you suppose you have a right to a good sight, and he or she has no right to a sight? Do you think matter has cohered together from its diffused float and the soil is on the surface, and water runs, and vegetation sprouts for you, and not for him or her. A slave at auction. I help the auctioneer. The sloven does not half know his business. Gentlemen, look on this curious creature. Whatever the bids of the bidders, they cannot be high enough for him. For him the globe lay preparing quintillions of years without one animal or plant. For him the revolving cycles truly and steadily rolled. In that head the all-baffling brain, in it and below it the making of the attributes of heroes. Examine these limbs, red, black, or white. They are very cunning in tendon and nerve. They shall be stripped that you may see them. Exquisite senses, life-lit eyes, pluck, volition, 
flakes of breast muscle, pliant backbone and neck, flesh not flabby, good-sized arms and legs, and wonders within there yet. Within there runs his blood, the same old blood, the same red running blood. There swells and jets his heart. There all passions and desires, all reachings and aspirations. Do you think they are not there because they are not expressed in parlors and lecture rooms? This is not only one man. He is the father of those who shall be fathers in their turns. In him, the start of populous states and rich republics, of him countless immortal lives, with countless embodiments and enjoyments. How do you know who shall come from the offspring of his offspring through the centuries? Who might you find you have come from yourself if you could trace back through the centuries? A woman at auction. She too is not only herself. She is the teeming mother of mothers. She is the bearer of them that shall grow and be mates to the mothers. Her daughters or their daughters' daughters, who knows who shall mate with them? Who knows through the centuries what heroes may come from them? In them and of them natal love. In them the divine mystery. The same old beautiful mystery. Have you ever loved a woman? Your mother, is she living? Have you been much with her? And has she been much with you? Do you not see that these are exactly the same to all and all nations and times all over the earth? If life and the soul are sacred, the human body is sacred, and the glory and sweet of a man is the token of manhood untainted. And in man or woman a clean, strong, firm-fibred body as beautiful as the most beautiful face. Have you seen the fool that corrupted his own live body? Or the fool that corrupted her own live body? For they do not conceal themselves and cannot conceal themselves. Who degrades or defiles the living human body is cursed. Who degrades or defiles the body of the dead is not more cursed. So it's worth mentioning here that the version of I Sing the Body Electric that I just read now is the earliest version published in the 1855 Leaves of Grass. Uh, later on, Whitman decided not to end the poem with those last two lines. Uh, they were deleted and, let's see, what year is this? In the very next edition of Leaves of Grass, Whitman deleted the last two lines and added this passage here, this very long passage. O oh, my body, I dare not desert the likes of you and other men and women, nor the likes of the parts of you. I believe the likes of you are to stand or fall with the likes of the soul, and that they are the soul. I believe the likes of you shall stand or fall with my poems, and that they are my poems. Man's, woman's, child's, youth's, wife's, husband's, mother's, father's, young man's, young woman's poems, head, 
neck, hair, ears, drop and tympan of the ears. Eyes, eye fringes, iris of the eyes, eyebrows, and the waking or sleeping of the lids. Mouth, tongue, lips, teeth, roof of the mouth, jaws and the jaw hinges, nose, nostrils of the nose, and the partition. Cheeks, temples, forehead, chin, throat, back of the neck, neck slew. Strong shoulders, manly beard, scapula, hind shoulders, and the ample side round of the chest. Upper arm, armpit, elbow socket, lower arm, arm, sinews, arm, bones, wrists and wrist joints, hand, palm, knuckles, thumb, forefinger, finger joints, fingernails, broad breast front, curling hair of the breast, breastbone, breast side, ribs, belly, backbone, joints of the backbone, hips, hip sockets, hip strength, inward and outward round, man balls, man root, Strong set of thighs, well carrying the trunk above. Leg fibers, knee, knee pan, upper leg, under leg. Ankles, instep, football, toes, toe joints, the heel. All attitudes, all the shapeliness, all the belongings of my or your body or anyone's body, male or female. The lungs, sponges, the stomach sac, the bowels, sweet and clean. The brain in its folds inside the skull frame. Sympathies, heart valves, palate valves, sexuality, maternity, womanhood and all that is a woman, and the man that comes from woman, the womb, the teats, nipples, breasts, milk, tears, laughter, weeping, love looks, love perturbations and risings, the voice, articulation, language, whispering, shouting aloud, food, drink, pulse, digestion, sweat, sleep, walking, swimming, poise on the hips, leaping, reclining, embracing, arm curving and tightening, the continual changes of the flex of the mouth and around the eyes, the skin, the sunburnt shade, freckles, hair, the curious sympathy one feels when feeling with the hand the naked meat of the body, the circling rivers, the breath, the breathing it in and out, the beauty of the waist and thence the hips and thence downward toward the knees, the thin red jellies within you or within me, the bones and the marrow and the bones, the exquisite realization of health. Oh, I say these are not parts and poems of the body only, but of the soul. Oh, I say now these are the soul. And Gary Schmidgall, who edited an edition of Whitman's poems, says uh, in this edition here, Whitman's characteristic bias in favor of the male anatomy is elaborately displayed. And whether you think that's a better ending than the first one, it certainly gives an idea of what Whitman was able to do with his many revisions of Leaves of Grass. A long time ago, I read a book about Walt Whitman that collected the odes and reflections and reminiscences and appreciations of Whitman by 
poets and writers from his own day on up to ours. And for a reason that I can't quite remember, I found the book pretty tiresome. Actually, I guess I do remember it because I found the book so tiresome. Um, and it struck me that way because each of the poets, and these are obviously fairly creative people, were all reading themselves into Whitman or the Whitman that they saw beside them or that they idolized um, basically looked like themselves or like their friends, their, their own contemporaries in their own time. And it was just odd to me that that would be the case. Uh, Whitman has always struck me for all his personableness, apparent personableness and hugeness and uh, uh, the way he portrays himself. That has always seemed to me to be just that, a portrayal. And that the actual Whitman is probably pretty mysterious. And there's sort of a danger in creating a Whitman or any, any other person that you admire out of your own head uh, that has more to do with you than with uh, the actual person. I'm sure I'm guilty of doing this with other people and with other things, uh, but I don't think I've done this with somebody like quite like Whitman. And it seems uh, one, of the, one of the parts of Whitman's life where this is done most often is when we begin to talk about his sexuality. It is assumed nowadays that he was just simply gay and lived a gay life, and perhaps that's the case. There is a book by Gary Schmidgall, a biography of Whitman that is simply called Whit uh, Walt Whitman, A Gay Life. And I do want to read that over the next few months to see what it says. But I sort of fall into the camp of those who are a little more hesitant to ascribe to Whitman the literal life that he describes in his poems of love affairs with men and uh, this great outgoing personality who was just as outgoing with his uh, physical life and physical pleasures as he says he was. Thinking of other poets that I know, other creative people, uh, and of myself as well, it's hard to believe that the portrayal that he makes of himself can be taken so literally, especially when it comes to something as strange and life-changing and sometimes frightening as physical intimacy or emotional intimacy. And what I wanted to read from tonight sort of skips ahead in uh, Paul Zweig's book about Whitman. It skips ahead and it is just a, uh, a long but I think very good section where Zweig uh, takes up the the question of just what Whitman's relationship to sexuality actually was. And he begins by saying that towards the end of his life, when Whitman sat down with his friend Horace Traubel and just spoke to him, I think that there are seven or eight or nine volumes that Horace Traubel ended up publishing about his talks with Whitman. 
Uh, towards the end of his life, Whitman confided to Traubel that there was a secret that he had and that he might let Traubel in on this secret. Uh, he never did, but this uh, the idea of of there being this secret to Whitman's life is where Paul Zweig begins his discussion of Whitman and sexuality. This is what he says. Um, the idea that Whitman had a secret would tantalize his young Camden friend Horace Traubel as it has tantalized critics ever since. The secret, quote, might test you, Whitman told Traubel, becoming solemn, even, quote, disgust you. He never told Traubel any secret, or if he did, Traubel kept it to himself, and we can only wonder whether Whitman's secret was as Victorian, as sexual, as it sounds. Was it related to the other secret that the English critic John Addington Simons has tried to ferret out when, over the years, he badgered Whitman about the Calamus poems and their suggestion of homosexual love. A century later, Whitman's sexual life is still a mystery. Was he homosexual? Did he become openly homosexual in the 1850s? His new, his new poetry, a celebration of erotic freedom. Who were the men that he listed in his 1850s notebooks? Young, physically attractive, usually working men or stage drivers, even policemen, with some personal trait he noted, liquid eyes, handsome, round red face. One night he walked up Gold Street after a fireman's parade with a tall young man named Billy. On another he bumped into Ike on Fifth Avenue, a fat drinking man, around 28, who rode a horse named Fashion in the Great Race. There was also Charles Brown, Broadway Brownie, and his friend Jakey, James Tall Genteel, and Johnny, round-faced, full, eyes liquid in Dunbar's and Engine House, and James Dalton, twenty, round-faced, lymphatic, lost front teeth. Also, Nick, black eyes, 40th Street, small. And here Zweig is quoting the little statements that Whitman has made about these men. In an 1860 notebook, a page is filled with an obsessive play upon the letters of the name Arthur Henry, with no description. And then there is this note, quote, December 28th, Saturday night, Mike Ellis, wandering at the corner of Lexington Ave and 32nd Street, took him home to 150 37th Street, fourth story back room, bitter cold night, works in Stevenson's carriage factory. End quote. There are dozens of these names <coughs> excuse me, in the 1850s notebooks and dozens more in the daybooks he kept in the 1870s and 1880s. Were these men Whitman's lovers? Possibly, but so many. The lists seem to be made at a sitting, as if Whitman periodically toted up his chance meetings with young men catalogued them, 
made list poems such as he envisaged as, quote, a new way and a true way of treating in books, history, geography, ethnology, astronomy, etc., etc., by long lists, end quote. These were, I suspect, part of Whitman's enterprise of keeping in touch. All his life, he was a collector of names, and one almost sees him leafing through his lists, reassured by the size of his collection. It is, after all, similar in its way to the editorials he had sent out day after day as a newspaper editor, like the filament filament of the patient spider in his poem. In Leaves of Grass, too, he invited an eternity of friends to gather close to him. Whitman's lists of young men read like a sad residue of his lifelong passion to be surrounded by throngs of comrades, or at least by names standing for comrades. Whitman never told Traubel his secret and we must not dismiss the possibility that he was teasing his young friend. Anyway, it is clear by now that no simple answers are likely to be found to any of our questions. Whitman's gift of poetry was rooted deeply and variously in his life. No secret will disclose it, for it is all secret, and no secret as well. Whitman's lists of young men do not tell us that he was homosexual, or, if he was, that he performed athletic feats of intercourse and kept a score sheet. They do tell us, yet again, of his collector's mentality, which found a perfect form in the catalogues of the early poems, and later in his book Specimen Days. Few poets have written as erotically as Whitman, while having so little to say about sex. For the most part, his erotic poetry is intransitive, self-delighting. It veers towards the larger self-delight of the mystical. Its analogies are with the ecstatic Sufi poet Rumi, or the tantric hymns of India, or the erotic swoons of St. Teresa. In practice, I suspect, Whitman was fairly chaste, the remote, edgy side of his character flaring up in intimacy, interposing an obstacle to love relationships of any sort. All observers seem to agree that there were no women in his life. Acquaintances from his Long Island days remembered that he, quote, seemed to hate women, end quote and a former student of his at Bayside on Long Island recalled, quote, The girls did not seem to attract him. He did not specially go anywhere with them or show any extra fondness for their society. He did not care for women's society, seemed indeed to shun it. Young as I was, I was aware of that fact. End quote. His brother George made the same point, and it is borne out by everything else we know about Whitman, including his clumsy flight from his English admirer, Anne Gilchrist, in the 1870s. Any love he experienced was for men, that's clear enough. The lists attest to it, as do the extraordinary love poems of Calamus, 
written in the late 1850s. As a young school teacher at Smithtown in the early 1840s, he had boarded with a family of one of his students, but, quote, the father quite reproved him for making such a pet of the boy, end quote. He told his friend Alan O'Connor years later. We glimpse here the ambiguity of Whitman's fondness for boys and see it again in the ties he formed with printer's devils and apprentices at his various newspaper jobs. And we see it at its most passionate in his confused, exalted state of mind while visiting the war hospitals around Washington during the Civil War, and again in his troubled friendship with a young Washington streetcar conductor, Peter Doyle, in the late 1860s. At times, Whitman's attraction to men seemed to rule his character and his thinking. The Calamus poems are lucid rhapsodies of love and loss. They are among the finest love poems in our language, and they are addressed to a man. With Song of Myself, Calamus became a cornerstone for all the future editions of Leaves of Grass. It is a culminating moment when Whitman's ineradicable feelings were reinforced and clarified by a political theme. In Calamus, Whitman saw democracy as a fluid, lawless, yet orderly exchange of feelings among comrades, a network of intimacies on a vast scale. Democracy could succeed only as an unimpeded flow of love, of which he, Walt Whitman, would give the first example with the open-toned utterance of his truest feelings. The poems of Calamus grounded Whitman's vision and gave it a wholeness, Intense love between men became, for Whitman, the fundamental bond. Half a century later, Freud, too, would ground his idea of the communal feelings in the homosexual aspect of the erotic drives of men and women. We glimpse the opposing forces of Whitman's character in a pair of incidents that occurred a dozen years apart. During the late 1850s, Whitman spent many evenings at the home of his mother's friend, Abby Price. Mrs. Price's daughter, Helen, recalled these evenings years later in a long letter which Maurice Buck reprinted in his biography of Whitman. This affectionate letter gives us virtually the only intimate portrait of Whitman we have from these years. Helen described him discussing Swedenborgian spiritualism with a family friend, Mr. Arnold. Also, reading aloud a draft of Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, playing with the children, basking demurely, almost reluctantly, in his budding celebrity. One evening, the discussion turned toward, quote, friendship. And this is what the letter says. Quote, he said there was a wonderful depth of meaning, at second or third removes, as he called it, in the old tales of mythology. In that of Cupid and Psyche, for instance, it meant to him that the ardent expression and words of affection often tended to destroy affection. It was like the golden fruit which turned to ashes upon being grasped or even touched. As an illustration, he mentioned the case of a young man 
he was in the habit of meeting every morning where he went to work. He said there had grown up between them a delightful, silent friendship and sympathy. But one morning, when he went as usual to the office, the young man came forward, shook him violently by the hand, and expressed in heated language the affection he felt for him. Mr. Whitman said that all the subtle charm of their unspoken friendship was from that time gone. This, and that's the, the end, of, end of, of that quote. This strikes me especially, and especially nowadays, since the version of love and affection we are given in movies and melodrama and even in novels and in and in love poetry as well i suppose and obviously in whitman's own love poetry the calamus poems it includes a not a freewheeling not a careless uh, ease with physical intimacy but that is always a component in it it is almost as if the physical is the is the end of the spiritual or uh, the emotional or the mental attachment. Uh, all of those go together and find their flowering in the physical act of sex. And it is worth noting here that, at least according to this story, that that is not what Whitman was looking for. Uh, it almost seemed that, almost seemed as if writing poems about the physical act uh, and about almost uh, perfect physical encounters was enough for Whitman, whether he believed that he was incapable of having these encounters himself or was simply too self-conscious, we might imagine, in order to do it. And it sort of fits in with the idea of Whitman writing these amazing love poems but being unable to find their equivalent in his own life. It almost makes sense that that is what he would do. He would write these love poems rather than actually finding a way to to live them. And as this story suggests, he may well have preferred it that way. But it is also worth repeating again here that, uh, as Paul Zweig says, this is virtually the only account of Whitman that we have like this. So, who knows? And uh, Paul Zweig goes on to say that the, the man mentioned in the story was probably, excuse me, a man named Frederick Hoyne, a young German poet who had worked with Whitman at the Brooklyn Daily Times in 1857. Whitman gave Hoyne a copy of Leaves of Grass, and Hoyne began translating it into German, but gave up perhaps because Whitman had suddenly cooled towards him. The scene completes our senses of Whitman's stubborn reserve about his intimate life. More than a concealment, the silence seems to have been a condition of Whitman's feelings. He felt and didn't say. He took refuge in undeclared, maybe unshared feelings. I hate to have people throw themselves into my arms, he once told Horace Traubel, saying, they insist upon themselves, upon their affection, 
It is a feeling I can never rid myself of, end quote. Whitman had mythology at his fingertips, and the reference to Cupid and Psyche is revealing. According to legend, after nights of anonymous love in darkness, Psyche schemes to light a lamp beside her bed in order to see her lover. The lamp falls over and spills scalding oil on Cupid, who flees forever. Knowing him, she loses him. Like the stories of Oedipus and of Narcissus, that of Cupid and Psyche portrays the temerity and the precarious adventure of the lowliest, simplest human act, to know another and to know oneself. And it was an adventure that Whitman shied away from. The golden apple could be savored only at a distance. And let me also uh, break in here again and say that uh, nothing has... Oh, I'll just keep reading. Uh, uh, Paul Zweig goes on to say, Ellen O'Connor remembered a bit of doggerel that Whitman liked to recite during his Washington years. A mighty pain to love it is, and yet a pain that love to miss. But of all pain, the greatest pain is to love, but love in vain. We can imagine Whitman clowning as he recited this little poem, yet it is touchingly appropriate. It expresses in the form of a jingle what Whitman had expressed in many of his calamus poems, the pain of his self-inflicted zone of silence, the lonely pride edged with humiliation, the anxious flight from what he wanted deeply and was reluctant to possess. As the critic Stephen A. Black has remarked, the kisses in Whitman's poems are always kisses of parting. And here are a handful of quotations from Whitman's poems. Sit a while, wayfarer. Here are biscuits to eat, and here is milk to drink. But as soon as you sleep and renew yourself in sweet clothes, I will certainly kiss you with my goodbye kiss and open the gate for your egress hence. And from another poem, I record of two simple men I saw today on the pier, in the midst of the crowd, parting the parting of dear friends. The one to remain hung on the other's neck, and passionately kissed him, while the one to depart tightly pressed the one to remain in his arms. The other incident dates from the late 1860s. Late one night, on an empty streetcar in Washington, Whitman sat down next to the conductor, a young man named Peter Doyle, and the two felt instantly as if they had known each other for a long time. Despite an age difference of almost 30 years, they became close friends and more. There is an impassioned delicacy in Whitman's letter to Doyle, a mingling of fatherly care and almost girlish love. Whitman's feelings were violently stirred, as we know from a desperate confession he made in thinly disguised code in his journal. And here's a long quotation from Whitman's journal. Cheating, childish, childish abandonment of myself, fancying what does not really exist in another, 
but is all the time in myself alone. Utterly deluded and am cheated by myself and my own weakness. Remember where I am most weak and most lacking. Yet always preserve a kind spirit and demeanor to sixteen, but pursue her no more. It is imperative that I obviate and remove myself and my orbit at all hazards away from this incessant, excuse me, away from this incessant, enormous, and enormous perturbation. To give up absolutely and for good from this present hour all this feverish, fluctuating, useless, undignified pursuit of 164. Too long, much too long, preserved in, so humiliating. It must come at last, and had better come now. It cannot possibly be a success. Let there from this hour be no faltering, or no getting, at all henceforth, not once, under any circumstances. Avoid seeing her, or meeting her, or any talk or explanations, or any meeting whatever, from this hour forth, for life. End quote. Here, for virtually the only time in all of his notebooks, Whitman cries out to himself for himself. He writes within a privacy made even more private by the nervous substitution of a number code for the initials of Peter Doyle. P is the 16th letter of the alphabet, and D is the fourth, and by the reversal of genders. This is no staged utterance or half-shaped poem, but, in the most modern, most tormented sense, a rank argument with oneself. The very sort of argument that Whitman never allowed to issue into poetry. Indeed, he had to strangle and overmaster it before it smashed his speaking voice. Whitman knew what he was feeling here, and he could not bear it. And as an aside, it's remarkable to think that uh, he was able to master this way of thinking and this voice to write not only the love poetry that he did, but any of the poetry that he did. Zwei goes on to say, in another journal entry, Whitman wrote, quote, Depress the adhesive nature. It is in excess, making life a torment. All this diseased, feverish, disproportionate adhesiveness. End quote. Psyche has lit her lamp. She knows whom she loves and her lover flees, or she herself flees. Her erotic drive and the knowledge of its object leave Psyche in a state of desperate perplexity. The most private core of her being is suddenly unshielded. Yes, that is what she had longed for, but longing is not the same. It is a way of being with oneself, substituting oneself for the distant and unknown lover. But now the lover is here, a puzzled young man flattered by Whitman's devotion, drawn to him in complicated ways, grateful to him, but irrevocably remote and mysterious, as another human being must be. The aside that I kept myself from saying before sort of hinges on this as well. I, I wonder how 
my own young life and the young life of many other people out there who might listen to this, how different our lives may have been in high school or later or before high school if we had been taught that longing is not the same thing as finding someone to actually be with if we understood that maybe sometimes and for some people and for some periods in their life that maybe longing is it and that maybe longing should be enough. Uh, what, I w what I was beginning to say before is that at some point, if I'm still doing this podcast, I would love to do an episode on how the portrayal of love in movies must have just ruined the expectations or the the outlook on love for many, many people. And, um, and in this, I don't mean that love is a sham and love is a lie. I definitely don't believe that. I think that romantic love and all other kinds of love are basically the only thing that people live for, uh, whatever kinds of clothes you put on it. Love is it. But, uh, the love we find in popular culture um, is not that kind of love. And when we're given examples of these utterly bizarre examples as young children or as teenagers of what love or sex should be, it's, uh, it's just incredible. And I have great sympathy with, uh, with Whitman here. Uh, Zweig goes on to say, If we compound this element, this elemental drama of self-risk, with the stifling taboo on homosexual love in Victorian America, we glimpse the desperate conflict in Whitman's inmost character. He could accept his sexuality only as a form... Excuse me. He could accept his sexuality only as a form of intransitive ecstasy, its object concealed by darkness, the lamp unlit, or indirectly and coyly lit. Indirection was not merely an aesthetic principle for Whitman, but an erotic strategy. Furtive as an old hen, he said half-mockingly of himself, with a sly switching of his own gender. So that finally Paul Zweig comes out with this sentence. This is unlikely to be the formula for a robust sexual life. Instead, we imagine a shy <clears throat> excuse me. We imagine a shy circling of the flame, a flirtation with saying the unsayable, a moral passion for the forbidden zones of behavior, for the reproved and excluded ones whom Whitman would defend as surrogates for his own self darkened self. Whitman would not spill burning oil on his cupid, but he would shed a half-light on him, would hint at secrets, and reveal them in coded ways. He would change the name of love to adhesiveness, so outlandish as to be safely unrevealing, and he would conceptualize the sexual bond by raising it into the realm of the American sublime and calling it, quote, democratic. His lists of young men, his 
passionate devotion to the wounded soldiers in the war hospitals were other circlings of the flames. Were at least some of Whitman's young men also bed partners? Such encounters, trysts in the dark, the lamp unlit, leave no trace, although I would guess that they were, and that they were not happy experiences, that the pain of loving in vain was somehow better and more sustaining for him. Whitman's genius was not, finally, for love, but for poetry, and for the obscure moral courage that keeps the deep source of emotions fully alive, even when the familiar sentimental satisfactions are lacking. For a dozen years and more, Whitman lived on this precarious edge, from the body of the, quote, truculent giant, Whitman's figure for democratic America, he turned to his own large-boned body, and the two bodies in a conceptual leap that remade American literature became one. We understand now the undertone of hysteria and the poignancy of some of Whitman's notes. One of these says, quote, poem incarnating the mind of an old man whose life has been magnificently developed, the wildest and most exuberant joy, the utterance of hope and floods of anticipation, faith in whatever happens, but all enfolded in joy, 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 which underlies and overtops the whole effusion. Whitman would not make poetry out of the argument with himself. Instead, he would pour ecstasies of hope and anticipation into a dream of self-making, of self-transcendence, of which the fundamental discipline would be the making of poems. These poems would not be monologues of inward conflict and resolution. They would leap cleanly with a tone of casual conviction into a vision of expanded being. The joy, joy, joy of the notebook would become the stalwart, magnificent old man of I Sing the Body Electric. And here's a, a section from that poem. This man was of wonderful vigor and calmness and beauty of person. The shape of his head, the richness and breadth of his manners, the pale yellow and white of his hair and beard, the immeasurable meaning of his black eyes. These I used to go to and visit him to see. He was wise also. He was six feet tall. He was over 80 years old. His sons were massive, clean, bearded, tanned-faced, and handsome. They and his daughters loved him. All who saw him loved him. They did not love him by allowance. They loved him with personal love. He drank water only. The blood showed like scarlet to the clear brown skin of his face. He was a frequent gunner and fisher. He sailed his boat himself. He had a fine one presented to him by a ship joiner. He had fowling pieces presented to him by men that loved him. When he went with his five sons and many grandsons to hunt or fish, you would pick him out as the most beautiful and vigorous of the gang. You would wish long and long to be with him. You would wish to sit by him in the boat that you and he might touch each other." End quote. Whitman's old man lounges beyond sexual incompleteness. 
beyond the edgy inward drama of Cupid and Psyche. He stands for the self that Whitman was even then making in his poems and in his person. Within half a dozen years, he would stride compassionately between rows of hospital beds, his reddish face, large frame, and flowing beard the embodiment of magnetic health and patriarchal confidence. How poignant, then, this note that Whitman appended to the anguished confession of his love for Peter Doyle, the quote, wise man reproves nobody, blames nobody, nor ever speaks of himself. All his desires depend on things within his power. His appetites are always moderate. He observes himself with the nicety of an enemy or spy, and looks on his own wishes as betrayers. Whitman's dream of an unwounded life is wistful and intense when set beside his capitalized and underscored cry of pain. And as an aside, that, that's it's true. Just think of uh, the section from I Sing the Body Electric and many of the kinds of poems and the tone of those poems that Whitman is known for and just compare it with the person who says he observes himself with the nicety of an enemy or a spy and looks on his own wishes as betrayers. The ability of that person to write the poems that he did is uh, incredible, but that, I suppose, that is art. Um, uh, Zweig goes on to say, he had not only acted his part of a rough or his later part of a commanding good gray poet, he had recoiled from an inward hunger he rarely expressed. When, for once, he spilled his pain across a page he had meant for wiser notations, he fled reflexively to the glorious fantasy that, for almost twenty years, had nourished his poetry. This is a quote from that poem. Outline sketch of a superb, calm character. His emotions, etc., are complete in himself, irrespective, indifferent, of whether his love, friendship, etc., are returned or not. He grows, blooms like some perfect tree or flower in nature, whether viewed by admiring eyes or in some wild or wood entirely unknown. His analogy, the earth, complete in itself, unfolding in itself, all processes of growth, effusing life and power for hidden purposes. End quote. Faced with a painful reality, Whitman called forth the image of a magnetic, large-spirited old father, drawn from the vocabulary of the benign Stoic Epictetus, from America's hagiographical worship of the fathers of the Revolution, and from his own lifelong fascination with old age as a triumph and a release. This image became a talisman, a companion of his mind. It became, finally, a template for his desire to be self-made or never made, as his phrenological mentor Orson Fowler had put it. Eventually, Whitman became the sage of Mickle Street in Camden, New Jersey, portrayed in Thomas Eakin's marvelous portrait and in the finest array of photographs ever taken of a poet. Garrulous and playful, superbly gifted for old age, 
having practiced the part all his life, even an old age of half paralysis, with long spells of debilitating exhaustion and dizziness, and never-relenting gastric pains. He would talk stagily and wonderfully to his little band of disciples and dangle his, quote, secret before young Horace Travell, who transcribed his master's every word into a serene, opinionated, fatuous, often wise record of an old man's musings. This was Whitman's gift, to shape his life to his deepest musings, to become the man of his words. For a dozen years during the 1850s and 1860s, the words were superb, the self-making and open-ended uncertain experiment. Whitman left repeated, leapt repeatedly to his pastoral vision, leapt and recoiled, and in the poems he recorded the pendulum movement, the exaltation and the lapse into pain. What is important here is Whitman's instinct for his subject matter, sensory, sensory expansion, physical ecstasy, and his ability to mold the resources of his poetry in order to express it. From the crucible of the erotic, he made a new form and a new tone, spacious, miscellaneous, sometimes refined to the heated intensity of a love poem, sometimes expanded to embrace the phantasmic, yet vividly various lover, the world. And that is the long section from Paul Zweig's book, Walt Whitman, The Making of the Poet, on Whitman and sexuality. I just had one thought as I was reading it, reading that, and, and I'll leave it there for tonight. And that is, if there's a reason for people to read or know about the biographies of the poets or the artists that they admire, this is one example of it because it, it can be very easy for someone to come across Whitman's poetry and imagine him as this sort of freewheeling uh, sexual acrobat and this uh, garrulous, uh, easily sociable person who was friends with everybody and who could talk to everybody and was at ease with everybody. And so it's and especially to a young person coming to poetry or a young person just or someone in their 20s or 30s um, I guess of any age uh, coming across someone who is quote-unquote famous or quote-unquote well-known and to take the cliches of their life that have entered the popular mind in Whitman's case of being very sociable and perhaps of being gay and perhaps of uh, having strings of lovers and to to take that as a model for one's own life that might not seem quite as exciting uh, so that reading this and understanding that this is only an interpretation of what may have been Whitman's private life it's worth seeing that perhaps these people who portray themselves or, or are portrayed by others as being so easy and free and alive are actually the exact opposite and that things and that the things and the art and the expressions that they have found the talent to use 
to make their world is just that. It is a, a miraculous front that can help people and inspire people, but it is not the real life. And fame is not real life, and nor is renown. And we have to imagine Whitman walking the streets with a young man, and just like everyone else, we can imagine just simply feeling nervous and self-conscious and wondering what exactly he should say. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.